Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Are we in the best of times or the end of times? One of the oddities of the current era is that extreme pessimism about the world coexists with extreme optimism, and both have a plausible case to make. I'm quoting Gideon Rockman from a recent Financial Times piece about Bill Gates and David Attenborough. Broadly speaking, Gates is a techno-optimist, convinced like his friend Steven Pinker that the world's getting better all the time due to technological and scientific progress and that our problems are largely solvable. Attenborough is the world's most recognizable narrator of nature documentaries and, well, with all that's been happening to the flora and fauna of the planet Earth, you can probably guess where he stands. My guest today, neuroscientist and MIT President Emeritus Susan Hockfield, is the author of the new book, The Age of Living Machines, and I think it's fair to say she leans toward the Bill Gates side of the spectrum. Given what she's seen and done in her historic career, it's easy to understand why. The technologies she looks at in the book sit at the intersection of biology and engineering, what Hockfield calls Convergence 2.0. From water filters based on cellular proteins to self-assembling batteries, they seem miraculous even to the trained eye, and they're densely packed with hope for human ingenuity and for solving global problems from food shortages to climate change. Welcome to Think Again, Susan. I'm pleased to be here. So convergence is really a big part of what this book is about, what your work has been about throughout your career. I wonder if we can talk a bit about that, about these unlikely ways that ideas come together and the role that's played in your, your work. You know, it's a great question because it reminds me of the antecedents to this passion I have about creating conditions where people can get out of their comfort zones, get out of their lanes, and uh, come up with solutions that they may not have had on their own. I had the extraordinary good fortune of doing my dissertation work in a laboratory at the NIH. And it was a pain research laboratory in the National Institute for Dental Research. And my advisor, of course, was in my field. I, by training, I'm a neuroanatomist. I studied the structure of the brain right. because my brain is tuned to understanding function based on structure. And our lab, our neuroanatomy lab, was embedded not amongst a bunch of neuroanatomists or even anatomists. It was embedded among neurophysiologists and pharmacologists and clinicians and psychologists. All of us were focused on the problem of pain. Can we understand how the brain receives that message? And can we figure out how to stop the brain from receiving that message when that message is uh, out of whack and not related to something that you need to attend to? And if I may interrupt, I mean, pain mm -hmm. is pain is the kind of problem that necessarily requires mm -hmm. a multidisciplinary approach, right? Because it is complicated and very difficult to unpack. It is complicated and difficult to unpack, but your assumption is my assumption, but it's not everyone's <laughs> assumption. Okay, all right, okay. So I can tell you at the time that this multidisciplinary group was trying to figure out pain processing and how to alleviate pain, there were plenty of other labs that were focused on only the anatomical pathways of pain Got or it. only the neurophysiological responses to pain. So the idea that you would put all these people together in a pain institute or a pain group uh, was not normal. Gotcha. And I say I had the good fortune of doing my dissertation research at the NIH because they had groups organized around purpose. Mm. At Georgetown, where I got my degree, I was in an anatomy department. And in another building, there was a physiology department. In another floor, there was a pharmacology department. Right. 
And we were organized by discipline academically, but at the NIH, we were organized by purpose or what I've come to call shared ambition. Because I grew up in that environment, I thought everyone works. I had your assumption, right? <laughs> everyone works this way. Why wouldn't you? It's lots of fun. You can make a lot of progress. But it's not the standard way of working. And uh, for good reasons, it's not the standard way of working. But I think it's important to create opportunities where people can engage in that kind of cross-disciplinary talk. Well, and lest people get the wrong impression that this is some kind of beatnik, hippie, free-for-all, you <laughs> at, 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 at MIT, you didn't decide to dissolve the individual disciplines or rename them. It was useful to bring people together who had specialties. It was just you were looking at the areas where they overlap toward a common purpose. Right. So there is um, an avoidance <laughs> problem, and then there is an um, attraction problem. Okay. So the avoidance problem is that academic structures are very embedded in institutions, and departments are set. Departments essentially own faculty appointments. And people would ask me, well, don't we need to have different departments? And my response is, well, I don't know what departments we would set up. I don't know what departments we're going to need in 20 years. So why right. would we start a new department? It's easier to, re to organize people in terms of purpose, leaving the uh, responsibilities of the departments in the departments to a certain degree. But the marvelous gift of being at MIT was the idea of putting people together across disciplines was not new. Mm -hmm. So during World War II, MIT was the place selected for the development of radar. It was a technological triumph. Many people consider radar to have been the war-winning technology, the atomic bomb, the war-ending technology. But radar was nowhere at the beginning of the war. England had developed a piece of the technology that was necessary, but they were busy fighting the war. They couldn't prosecute that into real radar. So the cavity magnetron was secretly sent to MIT, and a collection of scientists and engineers, there were linguists, there were economists, all working together in the secretly named radiation lab, so no one would know they were actually working on radar, Okay. developed radar, and not just the science behind it. They developed prototypes. They developed real radar devices that were went on ships and on planes. After the war, of course, there was no longer any need for the Rad Lab, but MIT didn't want to give up that idea. So part of the Rad Lab was transferred back into MIT Central called the Research Lab for Electronics. Okay. So the Research Lab for Electronics exists today. It started after World War II, and it's kind of a semi-crazy mashup of physicists and computer scientists and mathematicians whose appointments are all in their home departments, but their research labs are all together. So the idea of that kind of hybrid was already part of MIT's kind of received wisdom. Gotcha. And so we could start the energy initiative, bringing people together out of, you know, from departments into a focus on a sustainable energy future, or bring people together for the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research, biologists, engineers, clinicians, because that pattern of a research lab essentially right. was already established. I, I just we just used something that a model that was already in place. I see, which made it less less antagonistic. I mean, at the same time, with that, in spite of that infrastructure being in place and that kind of commitment to that sort of interdisciplinary, overlapping, creative, exploratory work, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of visibility at a place like MIT. I, so I guess. Tell me if I'm wrong. I guess what you would have to do is 
create arrangements that could be easily sort of like experiments. And I think you talk about this in the book, experiments that could be easily kind of assembled, dissolved, reassembled, different um, tests going on to see where you're going to get results from yes. simultaneously. Um, one of my um, most useful tools as president was never to talk about change. People hate change. And I think there's a neurobiological reason for that. <laughs> right, right. Everyone hates change. I mean, you know. But at MIT, no one can deny you the opportunity to do an experiment. Hmm. And so I always cast anything new that we were doing as an experiment with the very real purpose of saying, you know, if this doesn't work, you know, we'll come up with a different way of approaching this problem. You put some time limit, some something on it, six months, yeah. let's see, whatever. Right? And truth be told, we didn't do big experiments without having already had results from small experiments that gotcha. were already incubating pretty successfully. So sort of prototyping, as it were, and then yeah. taking it further. Uh -huh. Let's talk about some of the technologies in this book. And I, I guess before we do that, I want to I want to be honest and I want to kind of like out myself, which is that I'm not entirely sanguine about the relationship, you know, about about the relationship between science and industry. I'm concerned about the externalities, the unpredictable consequences that emerge from technology. I look at the world that I live in right now, and while I don't necessarily want to return to some, you know, probably never existed Edenic past, I sometimes wonder whether we are significantly overcomplicating things. And mm -hmm. so I think these themes, like, It'll be interesting to touch on them as, as we go forward, because I, I feel like, at least in the tone of your book, you're in a very different place from that. So the book is very optimistic. Yes. <laughs> I am, um, tend to be very optimistic and a bit impetuous. However, uh, the concerns you've just expressed are very important concerns and very real concerns, and we would be foolish uh, not to consider the possible probable downsides. And as a community, put in place constraints that would protect us to some degree from bad outcomes and biases toward good outcomes. So I think it's completely not just appropriate, but I think necessary to think about um, what could go wrong. That said, there's a lot of things that need to go right for us not to get into some pretty deep trouble over the next several decades. Let's talk about some of the technologies mm -hmm. in the book. I think the water filtration one is interesting for a lot of reasons. Maybe we can talk about that, about the convergences that are happening yeah. there. Yeah, that's one of my, I, well, I, I, I love the moths. I, you know, I don't have a favorite child, but the water technology chapter is really, it's a fun one and it's a great illustration of using biological parts to solve technical problems. Right. I mean, I, I don't know that any of the other examples are as clear. So um, we've been struggling with water, fresh water, for thousands of years. There's right. a drawing from you know some Egyptian tomb from 1500 BC showing a water filtration purification system. And I think Socrates wrote about distillation, water distillation. So mm. these are the two main technologies that humans have been using to purify water. Humans have had to purify water to survive for thousands of years. Distillation, filtration, we're doing it basically the same way, but we've had to do more. I think one of the reasons I became even more passionate about it was the clean water disaster in Cape Town, the city of country facing really catastrophic consequences of not being able to provide enough clean water for its people. It happens all the time. So frankly, most people in the world don't have access to the kind of clean water that they need. And we can't use contaminated water. We can't use salt water, which is most of the water on the face of the earth to do most, most of the things we need water for. So we've got to be better climate at Climate change and drought will exacerbate. Exactly. Problems, are so. exacerbating. Yeah. So the story, um, this is a, a set of improbable 
discoveries and advances that together just remind us how hard it is to draw a map to the future because who knew that you were going to find that on your map? So your, your direction changes. So we have to maintain water balance in all of our cells. We are, I've forgotten what the amount is, 95% water. Most of who we are is water. Right. But that water isn't just sloshing around. It's in our cells. And so our cells do a very good job of filtering the water into them or out of them right. when it's necessary. In the first half of the 20th century, when biophysicists began to understand how cells regulate things passing in and out of them, they were absolutely sure that there would be a water channel because it's so important. They searched and searched and searched, couldn't find one. So as a group, as a discipline, they decided there wasn't a water channel mm. that would allow water to pass in and out of cells. Instead, water passed through the cell membrane. So every cell is surrounded by this uh, coating that keeps right. things that are supposed to be inside the cell, inside the cell, and everything else outside the cell. I think that's how I learned it in high school biology, right? I mean, the I osmos <laughs> osmosis. I yeah, osmos osmosis could work, right? Yeah, yeah. So no water channel. Peter Agre, a fabulous physician scientist, uh, had decided, he's a hematologist, that for his research, he wanted to understand a protein called the Rh protein. It's a protein on red blood cells. It is no longer a bad medical problem, but it used to be a medical, bad medical problem. So when a mother's Rh proteins on her red blood cells don't match the Rh protein on her fetus's red blood cells, right. the mother will mount an immune response, which can be very bad for uh, the growing child, in fact, kill it. So we now know how to control that. There are antibodies that we use to protect the growing baby against the mother's immune system. Right. But we don't know what the Rh protein is. So we know a lot. It's, it's the standard progress of biology. We understand behavior, and later on, we understand the elements that give rise to the behavior. And I can tell you a dozen stories where you know the behavior was just something people explored, and then to actually get to the foundational elements took a, a lot more and surprising work. In any gotcha. case, so Peter Agre decided that he wanted to study the Rh protein, got a lot of red blood cells, went through this very elaborate and grueling purification procedure. He got, at the end of the day, what we want with protein purification, a band on a gel. He cut it out. He made antibodies to it and discovered that he had the wrong protein. <laughs> Oops. And when that happens, and it does happen in the lab sometimes, it's happened to me a couple of times, what you do is you go back and start again, adjust your purification protocol, and hopefully the next time you get what you're looking for. So he did that a couple of times, but he kept coming up with the same protein, didn't know what it was. And, you know, a reasonable person would have said, pay no attention to that wrong protein. I'm just going to go back and double down, triple down on getting the right protein. Right. But he couldn't get out of his head, and he couldn't figure out what it was. And he talked to a colleague of his, one of his mentors from early on in his career, and he was just mystified. And his colleague said, you know what? You may have gotten the water channel. Hmm. And Agri's response is, there isn't a water channel. Everyone knows there isn't a water channel. And so he faced the choice of pursuing a protein that everyone knows doesn't exist. <laughs> going back, <laughs> going after the protein everyone knows does exist. Anyway. He um, had been open enough, open-minded enough to pursue it that far, right? To, exactly. To what is this thing and not just get frustrated and throw his hands up or move on, as yeah. you said. Yeah. You put a lot of work into these yeah, protein yeah, purification, yeah. so it's hard to give up your baby once you got your baby, even if it's someone else's baby. <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> or right. doesn't exist. <laughs> In any case, so he, he persevered and indeed he had found the long sought but long elusive water channel. He named it aquaporin. Right. 
beautiful name. It is a beautiful name. And uh, it ends up that it's one of a, there is a whole family of aquaporins. Most of the aquaporins are water-specific channels. Some move other things too. Now, a water channel. I need to talk about what a water channel okay, is. Okay, sure. So you have this basic plastic bag that holds the cell inside it, but things have to get in and out of the cell. And so there are very specific pores in the surface of the cell. Some are specific for sodium, some are specific for potassium, and there's one that's specific for water, mm -hmm. aquaporin. These are proteins, so they're strings of amino acids that fold up in complicated ways and create a structure, they're little machines right. that do their particular job. Aquaporin's job, again, is to permit water and only water to go into and go out of a cell. Agre and his colleagues did any number of studies. Once they were onto this thing, of course, they did every possible analysis. He won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the work, and he deserved it, you know, just incredibly. So as he was studying it, he described the biophysics of the protein. So what exactly were the constituents of the pore itself that allowed the pore to exclude everything but water? Right. You explained it very, very clearly. I'm now going to give you my imperfect understanding, and right. then you can correct it. The protein, it's about sort of positive and negative charges yes. of the amino acids in the protein that are then essentially corresponding to positive and negative charges in the water molecule, yes. right? Yes, Okay. yes. And that are drawing it along thereby, sort of attracting, 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 but not behaving in the same way with respect to other molecules. Exactly. So it is the biophysics of the water molecule because there's one hydrogen and two oxygens. It's a triangle, right. a hydrogen at one angle, two oxygens at the other two angles, but the charges are different. So the angle that has the hydrogen is positive, right. and the oxygens are negative. It gives, gives water all kinds of interesting properties. Story for another day. <laughs> but the aquaporin channel has alternating positive and negative charges, and is of exactly the right size to get this. I, I think about it as, as the Virginia reel. You probably didn't do the Virginia reel when you were in grade no. school. And anyway, so it's a, it's a dance where you take one someone's hand, another person's hand, and, you know, and go down the line. And so this water molecule does positive, negative, positive, goes through, that, that conducts it through the channel. Got it. Completely amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> and a biophysicist entrepreneur uh, read one of the, the papers on the structure of the protein. And um, I don't know how people have these amazing ideas about the biophysics of aquaporin, how it works. And I think everyone was just in awe. I mean, it was, it, it was an amazing set of work that Agri and his colleagues did. And Peter Holm Jensen said, huh, look at that thing. That's really good at filtering water. I wonder if we could use it to make water filters. Who has that kind of idea? <laughs> And, anyway. Im and immediately when I read that in your book, I, the, the problems suggested themselves, like extracting enough of the aquaporin, keeping it stable, uh, somehow affixing it to a matrix big enough to allow it to filter water. All of these problems had to be solved. All these problems had to be solved. So he relied on the biopharmaceutical industry. So the idea of making proteins, getting cells to do our work. Right getting biology to do the work that we would normally have done by chemistry or physics. So you can grow up a whole bunch of cells. He uses E. coli, which is a very standard uh, lab and pharmaceutical factory, a biofactory. And so he can make E. coli, make lots of aquaporin. 
you know, it can make lots of whatever, rituximab, it can make lots of any of the biopharmaceuticals. But so he's got E. coli making this. But the difference between making these drugs that we now use, I think most of the top 10 best-selling drugs are biopharmaceuticals now, not chemicals. This okay. is brand new, but we know how to make biofactories. But those bioproducts are secreted. So you can just collect the soup that the cells are sitting in in order to collect your protein. But aquaporin is put into the cell's membranes. And so you've got to figure out how to get that protein out of the membranes. But then it only works when it's in a membrane. So then you've got to design a membrane for it to sit in for your water filter, a marvelous set of scientific engineering technical challenges. Right. In any case, uh, Aquaporin AS, a company I visited outside Copenhagen, fantastic, uh, has uh, water filters in home. So, you know, kitchen water filters right. in Asia. And they are on track to build commercial water filters. And the question that suggests itself, which I'm not sure came up in the chapter, is about salt water. W will that ever be able to filter salt water? It does filter scale? salt. Oh, it does. It okay. Does. I understood yeah. like yeah. I understood that this was about sort of cleaning up water for home and industrial use, but I, I didn't know that it could. Oh, it, any, anything you want to get out of water, you want to remove water, it will remove. Okay. So yeah. if it could do that at a very large scale, then that could be a, a significant solution to water source exactly. problems. Exactly. Yeah. So you've now touched on one of the most difficult parts of technology development. Startup is one thing, where you take something from the lab and say, hey, I think I can do a little experiment and, and build a water filter here on your little one-foot diameter table. <laughs> right. And that ends up to be hard, but what's much harder is scale up. Mm -hmm. So to industrialize is very, very hard. I got a question at a, a speech I gave last night about drugs, about if you can make a lot of drugs in a dish cheap for pennies, why, why does it cost so much to make drugs? And there are a lot of pieces of that. We can talk about that later. Sure, sure. But the biggest problem is the industrialization. These are technologies that we like to call tough tech. Tough tech are long cycle, capital intensive projects, means it takes a long time and a huge amount of money to figure out how to produce aquaporin in enough volume, you know, make enough aquaporin to figure out how to get it reliably, densely enough into the filters, make sure those filters last for a long enough time, you know, scaling up from a great idea hmm. to a successful manufactured product, that's very hard. And it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. In any case, but they're working on it. So they have filters in homes, which is a good first step in building up to a commercial scale for desalinization, which of course is, uh, in my mind, one of the most pressing needs. Although there's a lot of bad water out there that we could recover. There are a lot of places where we take beautiful clean water and turn it into garbage water. You know, we have beautiful clean water that we clean our clothes with, and then we've got to get rid of that water and all that water goes into the wastewater. Right. So what if we had a way of capturing some of that wastewater and recycling it? If you have an aquaporin membrane between, on one side, you have very, very concentrated detergent. And on the other side, you have the laundry waste, which is very not concentrated, which is you know, part of the problem, and put them across an aquaporin membrane then your friend osmosis <laughs> will drive water from the less concentrated side to the more concentrated side. Right. So the detergent becomes diluted with pure water because that water is going through aquaporin pores, yeah? Right. And then the effluent gets concentrated. 
So we so have you've less got your of a detergent burden. back to re, to use again. Well, you probably can't clean it because you also have dirt and oh, bacteria okay, and stuff right, like okay, that. But right. but the point is that your wastewater stream is going to be much less. We have a really big problem. We don't talk about this much of dealing about about waste, wastewater. Anyway, so it reduces the amount of wastewater. It also produces a recycling of the, of water that would benefit all of us. So various interesting ways of making our water use more sustainable. This is where the kind of critical and sometimes pessimistic energies push back at the maybe entrepreneurial and discovery oriented energies, but sometimes usefully, I think. I'm interested in the ways that, like MIT was working with industry from the beginning. That was, yes. that, that's like in the mandate, like from the beginning basically, right? That's I mean, right. That, and I am skeptical of the intersection of the, product, the profit motive and science. And I know that there can be conflicts of interest and I know that there can be problems that arise from that. And you said something at one point about the kind of relationships that MIT tries to develop with industry and how mm -hmm. that's in a way a, a corrective or, a, or a, um, a barrier maybe to some of the problems that might arise when a return on investment is the first Thing that you're after? MIT was founded with tech transfer in our foundational documents. So our founder, William Barton Rogers, realized that the United States needed to accelerate its industrialization in the global marketplace and also for the benefit of the American people. But we did not have an educational system that provided people with the necessary education. There are a number of schools that were founded about the same time, Rensselaer, West Point and MIT, mm. all with the same purpose, which is training, educating uh, young people, MIT men and women. We'll come back to MIT's mm. co-education mm. adventure. Let's do that, yeah. And, um, and the structure of MIT's education was designed to be practical, to teach people how to do things, to teach them how to implement the things for the world and the marketplace. So very much connected with industry, very different from the schools that were opened, say, at the end of the 18th century. Now, working with industry has a lot of uh, possible dangers. And MIT, throughout at least the recent history, this is a recent history going back to World War II, has, I think, been very committed to understanding those difficulties and developing policies that would mitigate them. So there are a number of things we can't do. So you can't come and fund my research and then I give the products of my research to you for a business. That just okay. doesn't work. Right. You can't have a, a you know, you can't have a, a lock on the research that you, you fund at MIT. You just can't own it. MIT that. owns the patents. MIT owns the patents. Yeah. That's by Dole Act, and that was a very, very important accelerant for translating research out. Let me just take a moment to talk about the Bayh-Dole Act, which is that the government appropriately has been putting an enormous amount of money into fundamental research. One of Vannevar Bush's uh, recommendations in his amazing treatise, Post-World War II, Science the Endless Frontier, was that the government had to continue to invest in research much as it had to prosecute World War II. That research should be done in universities, not in freestanding research institutes because of this marvelous mix of individuals, but also that that was the way of really accelerating our innovation economy. Absolutely brilliant. So the federally funded research uh, belonged to the government because the federal government had funded it, but very little of it was getting turned into anything useful. 
right. was being transferred into real technologies until the Bayh-Dole Act. And the Bayh-Dole Act transferred the ownership of intellectual property discovered using federal funds on a research campus to that university. Uh, and okay. that launched an incredible burst of innovation. That's been a very, very good thing. So these ideas actually now are being turned into uh, commercial products. Research was being done at the universities already, but mm -hmm. that act then incentivizes the universities, gives them a further incentive That's to, right. to That's develop right. new Because the university and... makes you know some money, not a huge amount. People imagine <laughs> we make a lot more money right, than right, we right. do. But we, we know it, it is very good, and more importantly, it's very important to link the academic enterprise to the industrial enterprise. Let me give you another reason why, as I've seen it, it's so important for us at some place in our continuum to engage with industry. MIT is a bit unusual because of the continuum from fundamental discovery from the most basic uh, science to the most advanced applications. Most universities play along only part of that. MIT plays along the entire continuum. And some of that maybe goes back to, you mentioned in 1930, is it? Who was the, who was the president of- Carl Taylor Compton. Carl Taylor Compton, who comes from uh, Princeton's Physics Institute, and in a sense brings that harder original science, you know, to-, to That's exactly to, to right. To Carl Taylor Compton was brought to MIT because the MIT Corporation, the governance of MIT, realized that MIT did not have enough of that starter stuff. Right. It was not doing enough, well enough. We did have a physics department, but its quality wasn't very good, that we needed to increase the quality so we could do the second half of that continuum, mm. which is translate the discoveries into uh, products for the marketplace. But what MIT has done is all along our path of you know, moving technologies into the marketplace, we have had innumerable faculty committees and outside experts help us understand how we can do that with the least conflict of interest. You can't make conflict of interest go away, but you can have rules that uh, prevent terrible things from happening. For example, I have a company, and I have a graduate student. I have a lab at MIT, I have a company, and I have graduate students. So I know if the graduate students are working in my lab, their most important product is the papers that are going to get them their next position and you know allow them to be the scientists of their dreams. If they're working in my company, I'm conflicted because the company has a purpose that it is designed for the, frankly, economic success and product success and that's a very different set of standards from my lab. And so we don't right. let graduate students do that. Right. It so, would be very easy to, um, yeah, exploit them for the purposes of the company. <laughs> and, and that worked very well for a while and for some people. And sometimes it didn't work very well. So that's prohibited. So, you know, as we figure out where the problems are, we do move to fix them. Probably my experience with the MIT Energy Initiative was the most illuminating in terms of the benefits of having very close working relationships with companies. Okay. We launched the Energy Initiative at a time when the federal government was not funding any energy research. We at MIT felt an enormous sense of responsibility to contribute more to solving, finding a way to a sustainable energy future. And there were a lot of people at MIT who were enthusiastic about it and had projects still going from the last time the United States had been enthusiastic about energy research. And I described these projects of things they were doing in the bottom drawer of the back closet because <laughs> they couldn't get funding to do them, but they were so committed to them. But the federal funding was not available. And we did partnerships with industry. Private philanthropy is enormously important. Remind me to come back to that. Okay. So through private philanthropy and industrial partnerships, we built the resources for the energy initiative to flourish. Now, it was not just resources. I often describe universities as producing baskets of solutions 
you know, we have all kinds of things that we discover, and we have no idea how they're going to be used. Right. Industry's job is to have baskets of questions, mm-hmm. baskets of problems, and they understand that when they solve a problem, they can be successful. And many of them guard these problems pretty closely because once you've articulated a problem, you can often find you've a path it. to a solution. Got it, yeah. And so the magic of our best industrial collaborations is we can match our basket of solutions to the basket of problems. And I can tell you, I'll give you two examples, certainly sure. for energy. Sure, that'd be great. Sitting on your own in a research lab at MIT, you don't really understand what the cutting edge industrial energy problems are. What are the impediments? It's a little bit like the scale-up problem we talked about before. Right. It's one thing to invent a new battery, but if that battery doesn't become something that can actually scale to uh, be the backup for a power plant or to you know drive a truck, it's, it's not going to be very useful. And industry has a perspective on the problems and then how to get to those solutions that is very different from the perspective of industry. So this partnership has been enormously productive. And now that I understand it, I see it everywhere. These things only happen when people have an enormous amount of knowledge and enormous depth of understanding. Another example is our cancer initiative, the COPE yes. Institute for Integrative Cancer Research. MIT doesn't have a medical school. We don't have a hospital. We don't have any patients. And one of the key components of our cancer initiative is a partnership with the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center, which puts us in conversation with clinicians. So a, something called the Bridge Project puts clinicians, real oncologists, real cancer surgeons in conversation with the biologists and engineers at MIT that allow them to explain what the real challenges are for diagnosing and treating disease. There's a remarkable col- uh, collaboration between a gynecological surgeon and uh, a couple of labs at MIT that are designing better ways to diagnose ovarian can- cancer, better ways to treat ovarian cancer, which you know, a researcher sitting in a research university would never really understand. We can imagine what the problems are. Right. It's very different to have someone who's on the front line actually deploying the technology. So that's been a very important uh, insight for me at MIT is just how important connecting what we do in terms of research to real problems in the real world. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think you know, it's very easy for, for me and I think for anyone to see the value of solving very real problems, you know, like hunger, like clean water, uh, clean water, like cancer. I mean, mm-hmm. that I, I think everyone can get behind that. Right? That's mm-hmm. a pretty nonpartisan affair. The thing industry tends to do is invent problems such mm-hmm. as, oh, you know, one child is not smarter than another. So once CRISPR-9 is good enough or whatever, let's fix that problem. And, and that's where I think we start, that's where we start to run into difficult issues and where, the, where these connections become concerning, you know, where it's just like, okay, is the research being used to make a better world or being used to create problems by solving problems that don't really exist in order to make money for somebody who had the idea to solve that problem. Yeah, no, so so there there are two issues you're raising. One is um, motivated by economics. Unfortunately, just can't stay away from that because once you get out of the research environment where the federal funds are supporting you, what you produce has to be economically viable. Right. But you're talking about economic um, avarice. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. And then there is... um, uh, another problem, which is, you know, products that really do change the game for people and others that just 
are, uh, let's just say, less significant. Well, that are either neutral or or problem yeah. causing, you know. So at the heart of, I think at the heart of the issue you're raising, which is a really important one, is that uh, science and technology are, are agnostic. And we see this again and again. They can be used for good or for ill. And it takes very wise people to basically put up guardrails that prevent us from going in the wrong direction. Very, very difficult to do, but something that we absolutely have to do. Do you think those canons should be the same people, that it's science's responsibility in part to put up those guardrails, or that we're, we should have you know, bioethicists and that it's everyone's job or it's everyone's job right. and i think we usually do a terrible job when we leave the scientists and technologists out of it so you have to have the people who really do understand the technology deeply but we also need people who understand human behavior deeply because i have to say i have um you know plenty of friends who um uh, don't understand uh the ills that humans will do and i think it's very important that we understand them uh, you know the current issue uh, the one that's getting a lot of print these days is crispr and whether we can set up guardrails for the use of CRISPR technology, I think is a very, very important question. I, I talked with Jennifer Doudna at a moment when I think she was like genuinely and somewhat newly freaked out by the potential implications of her incredible groundbreaking yeah. research, you know, where she yeah. was just like, okay, what do we do now? Now we really have to do something to make sure mm -hmm. this is used for good and not ill. And we saw this uh, yeah. when uh, gene engineering first began. And the Asilomar conference is, I think, one of the you know, best examples of scientists, and I think there were bioethicists, getting together and saying, look, right now we understand enough to say that this kind of using gene engineering for these purposes is fine, and anything out is out of bounds, and we will patrol ourselves. The problem, of course, is we can patrol those who are willing to play. Sure. But uh, there are plenty of opportunities for people to uh, work out of labs that are not part of the uh, common culture. Right, right. Well, and I mean, at different times in history, you know, like eugenics was mainstream in the scientific mm -hmm, community. Mm -hmm. So it, <laughs> sometimes it's not well, only Well, beyond the, the scientific community, it was embraced <laughs> by the entire community. Right, right, right. And we, we're, you know, we're just not perfect. And yes, we've right. got to be able to self-correct. I want to circle back to some of the issues that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about. And I think often we naturally end up coming back to these topics anyway um, from the surprise videos. But this in this second part of the show, for the audience, we are watching short uh, idea-focused video clips from Big Think's archives. And these are conversation starters that neither Susan nor I uh, have seen before. And we're just going to see where the where we go from there. Okay, this will be fun. Okay, so this video is with Nicole Bradford, and she is the CEO and founder of something called the Willow Group. Um, the video is called Nicole Bradford on Transformative Technology. There's one device that I particularly love. I'm really interested in behavior change. I'm really interested in behavior change because it's it's really quite hard. And there's been a couple of studies that have come out on human willpower. And, um, and our willpower actually isn't that strong. And so there's two products that work on behavior change that I've been tracking. One uses affirmation and the other one uses cessation um, as a tool. So the cessation one is called Pavlock. And um, it shocks you when you do something that you don't want to do. So it's a slight electrical shock but it shocks you nonetheless, and you can sort of amp it up if you want to. 
right now, you there are some things that it can tell that you're doing. So you can put in a list of websites. So if you have a Facebook addiction and you want to get off that, every time you go to Facebook, the wearable which you wear on your your wrist can shock you. Or they've been helping people with porn addictions because there's basically like 10 words that matter. <laughs> you can put all of those in the app and every time you go to a website with those words in it, then you get shocked. And they're actually really helpful because if that's a problem for you, it's a real problem. And so people need to have things that help them change the behaviors that they want to. The flip side of that is another device called Moti, which I just, uh, I just love it. It's this little ball that sits on your desk and it's got a little face on it. And every time you do something that you want to do, you touch it and it sort of, it blinks and vibrates and it coos. And it sounds like a really silly thing. You're like, why would you do that? But it turns out that our, our, you know, our, our, our inner mind, our monkey mind, the, the lizard brain loves that, <laughs> you know? We just love it. And so every time you do something that you want to do, every time you go to bed early or you don't, um, or you get up and go and exercise, you touch it and it can track your, you tell it what you're tracking. And so you can accumulate rewards for your positive change, but you get this sort of physical, uh, sound reinforcement that, oh, that was good. And in both cases, they're finding that they're helping people change behaviors that people thought they couldn't change. And so that's a really great example of, yes, there are limitations to technologies of any kind, but there's also so many great ways it can help people with private and personal goals that they have. What's funny for me there is that I, you know, I was just talking recently with uh, the primatologist Franz DeWall mm -hmm. um, about his intense antipathy for B.F. Skinner, which I share. And, you know, I can see the value of a product like this, obviously, if you're using it in a targeted mm -hmm. way. But I see technology more and more in our society in a sense, turning us into hamsters. I mean, that we're that if we surround ourselves with goal-oriented mm -hmm. devices at all times, trying mm -hmm. to transform ourselves into this or that or the other, it turns the beauty and the complexity of human nature into something else. So I'm with you. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the themes of the book is nature's genius. Hmm. Can't we use nature's genius to solve some of the problems? And part of nature's genius, I mean, perhaps one of the most extraordinary expressions of nature's genius is our brains. And for me, one of the most astonishing and marvelous discoveries of the late 19th, late 20th century for us uh, are mirror neurons. So I don't know if you've heard about mirror sure, neurons. Sure, of course, yeah. But there are, if you, you're on a bus or a uh, subway and there's a lot of noise and you watch two people talking, you notice, you can't hear the words, that when one nods yes, the other nods yes. When one nods no, the other one nods no. And we're always in this world of communicating with one another in ways we can't even understand. Yeah, I can feel myself smile in response to your smile. Exactly, exactly. So in a way, you can think that we're wired to get along. And um, one of the things that I do worry about is 
turning outward from our brains rather than exploring all of the marvelous abilities that we have in our brains, you know, turning to um, some device right. <laughs> that somehow mimics what we're doing, but mimics it in short form. I heard someone talk about digital sound, okay. which of course we have digital sound all around us. It's very processed. But the fact is that real sounds, nat natural sounds, have an array of tones to them that we lose through digital processing. And right. of course we need digital processing so we can hear anything from our cell phones, right? Those are lousy little you know, speakers. But in order to make your speech clear to me, Right. You have to edit out a lot of stuff. Even even an MP3, like which, you know, you can play an MP3 over nice speakers and you, it sounds like you've got this, you know, the London Philharmonic in your living room. You're losing an immense amount of data that's there in the uncompressed file that they can't have in the MP3 because it needs to fit in your device or stream. So yeah. I think I would simply say, let's not rush <laughs> <laughs> to eliminate things from our lives. But, um, you know, I like... You know, I've got all kinds of things that I use that are technology, you know, uh, adjuncts sure. that are helpful. Um, but I would hate to abandon nature's genius uh, in terms of finding new ways to think about ourselves and new ways to engage with one another. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the, I mean, that's, that's the most important thing in some ways about the, what you're calling Convergence 2.0 is the fact that science is, is learning from biology from you know fundamental physics at the nanoscale is learning how to do things better these uh, the self-assembling battery that you talk mm -hmm. about in the book using yeah using viruses using using dna to do the work that it does so well that we can only sort of clumsily replicate otherwise yeah so peter homiensen the uh, ceo and founder of aquaporin kind of gave me this phrase he said you know if we want to filter water we could really just bust our brains trying to figure out how to build a water filter, or we can just use nature's genius. Without it being too much of a non sequitur, I mean, I want to talk about the fact that you, you were the first female president of MIT, yes, right? Yes, right? yeah. I, I was certainly the first woman president. I was also the first life sciences president, and truth be told, I think the latter was more disruptive to MIT's self-concept than... <laughs> Uh, being a woman, but the issue was around bi biology was like a soft yeah, science. Yeah, soft or, yeah, well, There's no math in it, really. <laughs> right, right, I mean, right, right. I can you take it seriously? <laughs> anyway, um, even though uh, the biologists at MIT have won a slew of Nobel prizes, <laughs> right. but um, in any case, I'm very focused on women's opportunities, and you know, truth be told, women of my generation benefited enormously from the generation ahead of me. And I feel profoundly that the women ahead of me were the ones who have the broken skulls from banging against the glass ceiling. And, you know, there were cracks made that allowed me to, you know, slip through. However, the situation is still not where it needs to be. I have to tell you the MIT story of coeducation because I don't think anything was said about who could come to MIT, but Ellen Swallow Richards decided, I think in uh, 1871, she wanted to get a degree, so she came to MIT. She got it. You know, they, they set up conditions. And said, okay, you can come, but no one else is ever going to come. Okay. She graduated in 1873. She it was she was marvelously successful. And in 1883, MIT became officially co-ed. So MIT has been co-ed since 1883. The numbers have been little. You know, so a few percent here and there during the wars, of course. Uh, there are more the greater percentage of women because the men are off doing something else. Right. But starting in the 60s. Uh, my predecessors put their mind to the task and the number of women undergraduates began to rise. Hmm. When I arrived, uh, already 45% of the undergraduates were women. 
My favorite MIT statistic, it's you know almost half and half. 85% of our undergraduates men major in science or engineering. Okay. 85% of our undergraduate women major in science or engineering. I was going to ask that. I was going to say, is there, does it break down, are there differences across the different disciplines? And oh, everyone not, always makes the assumption, oh, the women are majoring in the humanities and social sciences, and they are at the same frequency the men are majoring in the fantastic. humanities and social sciences. Now, if you break it down further, there are some departments that have more women than men majors, chemical engineering, biological engineering, um, I'm not sure where mechanical engineering is now, mm. and others that have fewer. Biology has more women. Physics has fewer, more men. You know, computer science. Computer at least science out in the field seems to be more male still. It is, but um, so that's actually a great point because at MIT, I think we're now up, you know, at 40 percent women because people have tried. So it ha if you just leave things to their own devices, you don't make any progress. But there have been, um, you know, just leader after leader, dean after dean, provost after provost, department after department head, who has actually taken on this task of making sure that the discipline is open to whomever has the passion and the intelligence to contribute. Right. So MIT has been, you know, working hard at it. It is not, um, you know, known to be a, um, uh, you know, a wonderfully um, heterogeneous organization. It is. We have a lot of international students and we um, are making every effort and as I said, before I started, they were making an effort. I continue those efforts, and my successor is continuing those efforts still. But it's something, and I always say, I had to keep my eye on every minute of every day because whenever I took my eye off it, someone kicked the ball off the field. So it requires focused effort from the top down in every organization. We've got to Be fix this because... Uh, we are missing out on the contributions of uh, a lot of our population who want to contribute and can contribute, but they're being discounted for reasons that are irrelevant to the task. Yeah, and in the absence, I, I guess, of that vigilant positive action, the old assumptions creep in that there are like biologically essential differences that mm -hmm. are accounting for, oh, women just aren't as interested in numbers, you know, or some nonsense. Right, like and one of the problems <laughs> is that um, by the time you, you're at the age of going to college, you, you know, receive these messages, you know, again sure. and again. And so uh, we're working very hard with programs to encourage middle school girls who have an interest in science and engineering to stay the course, high school girls uh, to stay the course. And um, I can hope, even though now I see you know, lots of work that still can be done, I can hope that we're, we're making progress a little bit more rapidly than we were uh, in the past. You were instrumental also in, in like edX and maybe, I don't know about MITx, but essentially the legacy here is one of, of opening, it sounds yes. like, on every front. You yeah, know? my predecessor, the late Chuck Best, uh, launched, I actually think, is the most important experiment and then... Uh, program in online learning, open courseware. He was president during age when everyone was trying to figure out how we were going to make money from online learning. We had the conversation at Yale when I was dean and provost and came up with a lot of different experiments. Chuck Vest convened a faculty committee and said, figure this out for me. Tell me what we should do in online learning. And they came back and they said, you know, we've analyzed this every way we can and we can't figure out any way we could make money or anyone could make money at this. So um, let's just give it away for free. So OpenCourseWare was born with philanthropic support, again, the critical role of support from private funders who recognize that something offers a possibility, perhaps not the ultimate solution, but a possibility. So OpenCourseWare was launched with the ambition 
put all of MIT's course material on the web for free. Right. Simply amazing. Which is like a, ra a radical move for radical. a university. I mean, not just in terms of how do we monetize online learning. I mean, that's the, the fundamental intellectual property of the school, as it were. That's you know? right. And yeah. move to video very fast. So, you know, video the courses. Yeah. And so you can not just you know, use the materials. You could actually watch the lectures. Absolutely fantastic. I would get emails as president from, you know, <laughs> young people, old people in countries all over the world telling me how OpenCourseWare changed their lives. Truth be told, online learning is not for everyone. You need to have an enormous self-discipline to actually pursue a course to its end. Right. But, but if you're what a, a gift. kid in Kenya with who somehow got hold of a, you know, smartphone and doesn't have much else, you can learn quite a lot right there. But you got to stick at it. Yes. You know, stick to it. So 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 there that's still an unsolved problem with online learning is is persistence. But happily there are ambitious people, intelligent people all over the world who have benefited from MIT's resources. I was talking to one potential funder, let's say potential but failed funder, okay. uh, about uh, the open courseware plan. Again, I inherited this from Chuck and it was just a great, uh, you know, what a delight to be able to be part of promoting that. And I said, well, you understand, we want to get all of our courses on the web for free. And um, this industrialist said, mm, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I said, do what? He said, put all of your courses on. Why don't you just put the three or five best courses? And I said, well, how would I know what those would be? I said, what would you guess our best courses might be? A survey had just come out of the, you know, the, the top ranked or the, the most used uh, internet course resources. <laughs> so I had this little trick in my back pocket. You know, one, two, and three, or one, three, and four were linear algebra. Okay. And course one, course two of physics. So electricity <laughs> and magnetism. Anyway. That, uh, that would be MIT's calling card to the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, linear algebra. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, <laughs> the use of these materials have been fantastic. We subsequently launched MITx and edX uh, while I was president in another effort to just move this resource, you know, to another level where more people around the world could benefit from it. We haven't cracked the code. I mean, it's marvelous having these resources out there. But again, the, the persistence, persistence is yeah. hard. Um, because the material for our courses is online, I have often asked my students about going to class. Why, why do you come here? <laughs> and so um, one of my students said, oh, I always go. We have a fabulously, uh, a fabulous biology, introduction biology. A lot of our introductory courses are taught by our very best faculty, or our very most famous uh -huh. faculty. I can't uh -huh. say our best. That's Eric nice. Lander teaches introductory biology. And uh, one of my students, one of my freshman advisees said, oh, I always get there 20 minutes early because I like to sit in the second row. I'm not brave enough to sit in the first row, but I'd like to sit up close and so I've got to get there early. And I said, but why don't you watch it from your dorm room? Because we live streamed at that, at that time. And the student said, I can't pay attention the way mm -hmm. I can pay attention in class. And there's something magical about bringing people together the founders of the first universities understood the power of gathering together to support one another in their pursuit of new knowledge. What I often say about the people who come to MIT, you know, if you thought you could do as well on your own, you'd be building these technologies in your garage or your basement. But people understand kind of intuitively, again, this is kind of the magic of, right. of human interaction, the power of convening. And, you know, one of the things I have learned, I certainly didn't know this uh, when I was a young scientist myself, that 
If we can create these spaces for convening around our most important problems and offer the possibility for everyone who wants to play to come to our playground, we can make progress much faster than we can by insisting that people do the work on their own. And that's the power of the university at its best. Susan Hockfield, I've got to let you go um, in the interest of time, but I, I very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing the, these ideas uh, both here and in your book. Well, thank you very much. This has been a terrific conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, Susan's book is The Age of Living Machines. And remind me of the subtitle? How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. Okay, and it's available now. Since I recorded that conversation with Susan, I've recorded four more. And I want to tell you in all honesty that there is some intense and wonderful stuff coming up on Think Again. Please stay tuned. In the meantime, feel free to visit my website, jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com, where you can send me an email or join my mailing list. I'll be back next week with something completely different, yet eerily connected. Isn't it always? I hope you can join me. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.